ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, this is Chickie Fitzgerald, and we have a special guest today, Leo Bottery, and the, his book is called Peer Innovation, What Peer Advisory Groups Can Teach Us About Building High-Performance Teams. And I, I love this topic, Leo, so I can't wait to jump into the book. But before we do that, uh, first of all, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be here. And Leo, why don't you give us a little bit of your thumbnail? Uh, our listeners love to hear the backstory of our authors. How did you become an author? Why this book? Why now? And really, what qualifies you from, from your backstory, you know, <laughs> to really talk about team building and advisory groups? Well, I guess the backstory in terms of what inspired the writing the book really began in graduate school in many respects. I began graduate school uh, a little later. I graduated college in 1983, didn't go back to get my master's until 2006. <laughs> so, and, and things had changed quite a bit. Uh, um, you know, the, the learning process back when I was going to school was pretty much, you know, teacher student, and that was about it. And anything that would have resembled collaborative learning would have been called cheating probably back then. But um, <laughs> when, when I was, uh, you know, in graduate school, I really got this incredible experience at Seton Hall University, uh, working as part of groups and as part of teams. And it was incredible experience. And the professors did a wonderful job. And I think they regarded the whole idea of it as, you know, learn most from one another, second from the material, and maybe third from them uh, as the instructors. And I think it was a pretty incredible model and had no idea at the time when I was going through that, that, you know, just a few years later, I would accept a position with Vistage Worldwide, and Vistage assembles and facilitates peer groups uh, in the U.S. and in 19 other countries uh, around the world. And they do it for CEOs and key executives and, and all of that. And it was really during my time there when I headed up corporate communications and brand communications that I led a brand refresh for the company where I talked a lot about, you know, and talked to many CEOs about how they learn, how do they grow, how do they bring new ideas into their companies. And they would tell me everything from, well, you know, I have a coach, I hire consultants, um, I read books, I go to executive development programs at Harvard and Stanford, things like that. But very few, if any, would ever even had as part of their consideration set the idea of becoming a member of a peer group. And having been at Vistage and you know, combining that with the experience I had in graduate school and seeing how incredibly powerful these groups are, it just occurred to me that you know, so few people uh, actually use them. So I took a lot of the experiences I had with Vistage. And once the brand refresh was over, I spoke with the CEO and the board of directors and said, look, Vistage is trying to sell a Mercedes to someone who doesn't even know what a car is. <laughs> so what if you know, as, you know, I think a leader in this category, rather than write a hardcover brochure about Vistage, let's in fact take time where, and I took the lead on this in terms of really studying peer groups all over the world. Um, Vistage, YPO, EO, um, people who started their own peer groups. I looked at Bill George's work at the time because he had been um, writing about that. And 
You know, it was through that work that we developed a, a book that we published in 2016 called The Power of Peers. Um, and basically since that time, I've conducted using the framework that we developed from the power of peers. I've worked with CEO peer groups, key executive groups and cross-functional work teams where I did basically two things. One, I built on the work, the original work from the power of peers to benefit groups and teams, but also really made, uh, I think, and, and the work itself revealed the incredible connection between what works for these peer groups and what makes them so effective is also uh, incredibly applicable to high-performing teams uh, at companies. So this work really comes from um, members and leaders and um, employees and, you know, probably the input of about 1,800 to 2,000 people. So much of this is, you know, what I got to learn from them over the four years of workshops I'd conducted. So that's kind of where the content of this book comes from. Very interesting. So, so Leo, you know, you've talked a little bit about the shift in mindset that you have seen, right? And, and how these groups like Vistage have proliferated. And, you know, I've, I've been, I feel like I've been to all of them, right? At least once, but very few actually drew me back in because uh, especially right now, uh, and this may be a bit of a COVID phenomenon, uh, there is just so much content being thrown at us. I feel like we're at a 24-hour-a-day all-you-can-eat buffet, right? But there's very little on the actual building of relationships, right? So what, what is your observation as it relates to that? And, and how does, you know, the word that you have coined, peer innovation, what does that look like in this, in this new world moving forward? You know, perhaps after we get out of this, you know, 10 Zooms a day, right? And breaking into, you know, discussion groups for five minutes after being fed 40 minutes of content, right? Yep. Well, you make a great point. Um, and what I think peer groups do so well is marry content with relationships, right? And what we know about how we learn is that we learn better when we learn together. We are social learners. There's mountains of, of evidence on that and just countless, you know, articles and books that have been written on social learning. And one of the things we discovered in terms of looking at peer groups was what we call the learning achieving cycle. You know, again, when we learn and we share with one another what we learn, not only do we embed that learning, we understand the content that much better, but we also give one another the courage and the encouragement to act on that learning. And then when we do and we apply it, and even if there's some trial and error in there, when we apply it and achieve success, achieve really good results, it's something we want to do more of. It's what great groups do. It's what great teams do as well. You know, one of the things we started basically even with the power of peers looking at the University of Connecticut women's basketball team, one of the top college programs, men or women, you know, uh, in the country. And we've looked at other teams as well. Those teams that are consistently competing for championships, those teams don't regard championships as the goal. They regard them as the reward. The goal is getting mm. better every single day. How do we learn? How do we grow? How do we apply what we've learned? How do we keep doing that? And how do we keep that cycle running in a very robust fashion so that we continue to set our own standard of excellence? And that's what the very best groups and the very best teams do. And that's that shift in mindset. Um, 
that we get to from really thinking about um, trying to, you know, go it alone or trying to think in silos to recognizing, hey, we, we need help. And if we think uh, in systems and if we work together, we can do some really extraordinary things. So talk to me a little bit about why it's important. And I, you know, I think this is kind of a rhetorical question of <laughs> why it's important to be with the right people. And I'll just interject very quickly. Again, I mentioned I have been to, I've been invited to so many of these different peer groups, particularly as a tech CEO, uh, even though my company is earlier stage than most of these groups are looking for. Um, they invariably, you know, come and, and say to me, oh, you've got to come and give us a chance, right? And, and I've, I've gone. And most of the time, the reason I walk away is not because of what the organization stands for, but it's because of the people in the room. And I'll give you one example. There was a, a group that uh, is very, very selective about who they invite. And again, uh, only invite successful CEOs. And I was in a group of 10 men and, and I was the only woman in the room. And you know that that's neither here nor there, but I wasn't just another person that they were used to having in the room. I looked different. I sounded different. And I have a very different name. Chicky is not, you know, your, your natural name. And after a four hour meeting, one of the guys said to me as I walked out, oh, Charlene, it was so nice to have you here today. And I, he had been sitting right across from me and I had my name tag, you know, and I thought, are you kidding me? And it just, it spoke volumes. Mm -hmm. So having the right people around you in this peer group, and whether you're surrounding yourself with CEOs, or you're a coach or a consultant and find the right group that has that mix. Um, what is the right mix? Well, it's a great question. And it really kind of depends on who you are and what your goals are and what you're looking at uh, for yourself. You know, when it comes to hanging around with the right people, our parents understood that, right? They really cared about who our friends are because they understand no matter what the relationship we had with our mom and dad, that our friends were really key influencers on us in terms of how our, beh our behavior, our aspirations, all those kinds of things. Um, you know, the people who were around us were either the ones who lifted us up, they held us at bay, they dragged us down, whatever. Right. Right? Um, but when it came, comes to groups, we talk a lot about, you know, the right people and the right people in many respects. So let's say if you were to take an example of a, of a CEO group uh, at Vistage, for example, um, first and foremost, the people in that room share the common responsibility of being the chief decision maker in their company. They don't make decisions based on simply HR or marketing or sales or legal. They've got to look at everything and right. they do so on behalf of the entire organization. They share that common challenge. With that, they also really need to share values about what being a contributing member looks like. Let's pause for a commercial break. You've been listening to The Game Changer, sponsored by Traveling to Give. For more information about our smart event tools that give back with each trip, visit travelingtogive.com. One of the things about this book and the framework that's been created uh, for it is that it's a framework. It's not a prescription. The idea is that any group or any team can use this framework and make it work for them based on who they have in the room, what their aspirations are, and, and what that really looks like. But I think if you've got people who 
share a common purpose and a, a common challenge and can empathize with one another. They share the values and behaviors that make them a good contributing member. And you've got enough diversity in that room, I think is key also, so that you can capture all of the different perspectives right. that we can all use as opposed to just being in our own heads all the time. And I think that, um, and I would encourage people, you know, if you do uh, try being in a group and you have the experience you did when maybe that group wasn't the best, that doesn't mean any group wouldn't work for you. It just means that wasn't the right fit. And that's okay. Um, right. You know, companies all the time, we hire people. I mentioned to CEOs. I mean, you know, I've had my own company. I've led divisions of companies and hired people. And how many of us have had the experience where someone submits a great resume, great interview, the team interviews them, we love them. They start three months later, it's not working out. We're all looking at each other, shaking our heads saying, what, what <laughs> is happening here? And we've all gone through that. It doesn't mean that that person is bad. They, they weren't able to succeed in our organization or we weren't able to make that work, but you know, they'll probably take a job somewhere else and do fantastically well. And it's just, you know, understanding ourselves, understanding our group or team and, and what we're looking for can help us get the right people and it can help the right people self-select the right group or team as well. Right. And, you know, again, I think we see this just in all, all kinds of other areas of our life. I mean, I'm thinking right now uh, just about cooking, right? Baking a cake, right? If I'm making a chocolate cake and I've got a whole bowl full of ripe avocados, right? I love avocados, but it's probably not the right ingredient for the chocolate cake, although it might be interesting, right? But, <laughs> exactly. you know, I think I think people are, are really the same thing. And whether it's a leadership team or a peer group, um, you know, the understanding that goal versus the reward, right? Which I think is a very, very interesting perspective. And, and actually, what are you trying to bake, right? What, what do you want the outcome to be is so important. I think the next thing, and, and again, I, I will speak a lot uh, of bringing the, the female perspective to the table. Uh, this next one is one where I think women have a unique desire to have a certain level of psychological safety, which is the term that you use in your book, but uh, the ability to share on many levels that perhaps in a mixed group uh, isn't, uh, doesn't feel as safe. And, and let me give you an example. Back uh, in 2001, uh, I ran a women's uh, forum for an industry conference. And it was a format that was very, very successful. We had uh, everyone in a, a, a big ballroom uh, with the tables in a square. And so we didn't have talking heads. We did have uh, facilitators. It was all women. And for four hours, and you know, you have to be a woman to kind of appreciate this, but nobody got up to go to the bathroom, right? They didn't want to miss an um, a second of what was going on. Right. And we decided that it was so successful uh, and that the conversation, because it was just past September 11th, I'm in the travel industry. So there was a lot to talk about of what was going on in the travel industry. We decided to try it the next morning with a mixed male and female group. And the things that we had talked about the day before 
were really no holes barred, right? You know, how, how were things uh, at home, you know, with all the pressures of September 11th? And, and um, we tried it the next day with a mixed group and it completely fell flat uh, because the women didn't feel comfortable saying the same things that they had said the day before. So tell me your definition of psychological safety in these groups, because that is important that you trust people and that you feel safe to be whoever you are and whatever the parameters of that are in that particular group at that particular time. Sure. Well, I think the example you brought up is a real interesting one and speaks to this idea of what the first group shared in common and that there was less certainty about that on the second day, right? So those kinds of things can compromise psychological safety. Psychological safety is a term, obviously, you know, that people like Amy Edmondson at Harvard Business School and others have been, you know, it's been around for for decades. Um, It was made much more prominent, much more, I think, um, famous, if you will, uh, because it was such a major finding of Google's Aristotle project when they were studying teams and what made them work so well and that recognizing that the most effective teams are those teams that where its members do have experienced psychological safety, where they can speak up, where they can speak out, where they they recognize that it's okay to make a mistake or that it's okay to say, hey, I need help uh, in a certain area. And those teams tend to be really, really healthy. And so whether it's for groups, you know, or teams kind of recognizing and looking one another in the eye and talking about you know, the ground rules for how we're going to work together, what that's going to look like. For groups, one of the things that, um, you know, really support psychological safety is the fact that confidentiality is sacrosanct. In most peer groups, there's a, 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 you know, just a tacit understanding that whether it's on the Zoom or in the room, what happens during that time uh, remains there. And it remains right. with those who are part of that discussion, which that helps a lot of people feel a lot safer about bringing things forward, talking about what they're afraid of, talking about what they don't know or what they're uncertain about. And because they tend to share the same role and responsibility, they share those same feelings as well. Um, So to be able to have a group you can empathize with in that environment is really helpful. And obviously from a team perspective, if you're going to pay a lot of people, a lot of money to be employees and put them in responsible jobs. Why in the world would you ever handcuff them by not making sure that they feel psychologically safe to bring their expertise, you know, to the table to for the benefit of the organization, whether it's always something you want to hear or not. Right, right. So how does that impact? Uh, and the the next topic is productivity and and. So I'm, I'm trying to look on those things that would compromise, right? We just talked about psychological safety and the things that compromise that psychological safety is not holding the contents of a meeting or a discussion in that sacrosanct place, right? So when it comes to productivity and how this peer innovation uh, can improve it, uh, why don't we start with what are the things that compromise uh, productivity? Yeah, um, well, one of the things that can compromise productivity is people's lack of cooperation, collaboration, and and the fact that they don't communicate uh, particularly well. 
Um, one of the things about these the five factors basically that are responsible for driving that robust learning achieving cycle we talked about before is they are a reinforcing loop. It starts with the right people. Then it's about really having the kind of psychological safety that can bring you to a place where you can be productive together. So that's really kind of the key you know, to that. And if you can be open about how you can work together and cooperate and collaborate, you know, it makes all the difference in the world. And I think it's particularly challenging, quite frankly, in today's society that has become complete, um, that is incredibly divisive, at least politically and all on the outside, into making sure that that doesn't carry over into our companies or into our groups, you know, I think is really, really important that we recognize what we're there for and that, you know, when you have a group of people that respect one another, trust one another, um, you know, and they can just do a lot more than anybody, any individual. There's a exercise that I do oftentimes when I'm speaking and I'll ask someone, for example, to stand up and it could be a room of several hundred people, right? And I'll ask them, hey, if you don't mind, I want you to, I want you to pick your favorite sports team in your mind and imagine what it would be like if you, uh, if they won the championship and I want you to just literally in the moment, you know, react to, you know, the last second, you know, of the game when you realize your team won. And of course, right. now this team, this person by themselves has to, and it's a very self-conscious moment, of course, but they clap and cheer and they yell and everything else, right? Then I ask everyone to join them uh, in the same, imagine in their own mind, kind of the same situation. So now instead of one person, now you've got several hundred people and you can only imagine, A, no one out of the several hundred people feels self-conscious because everyone else is doing it also. But this thunderous roar that you get from several hundred people versus what one person can do. You know, too often times we as individuals believe we can fill the room with sound all by ourselves when if what we do is in, you know, if we just simply recognize that we can engage others and if we can do it productively and cooperatively, that we can make things happen that are just so extraordinary and, and something that nobody can really accomplish alone. Right, right. I heard a story yesterday and I remember seeing this video some time ago. It, it was one of those viral things that was going around. Uh, it was at a, a music festival, uh, an outdoor music festival, and one guy gets up and he starts dancing, right? And everybody kind of looks at him like he's crazy, right? And, and this is what it reminded me of when you were talking about asking the, the guy to stand up and pretend his team just won, right? Well, when the second person got up to dance, then it all of a sudden became socially acceptable, right? And then it, it didn't take long before like the entire hill Everyone's was filled with dead. people dancing, That's, right? That is such a fun video. It's a great, you know, um, just little uh, leadership metaphor there. That's well, really, it is, really it great. is. And I think that, that that really embodies what you've just talked about is that then when you can convince everyone that it's okay, right? And, and I think that this is what happens going back to psychological safety. If you have been with a group long enough, um, that becomes the norm of being able to be free to say whatever you want. And then all of a sudden the leader decides, oh, I'm gonna invite a new person into the group. And all of a sudden everybody closes up again right? For, for a time, right? Until the new person, uh, you know, becomes comfortable. So yeah, that does it happen. Really, there can be a dip for sure, right? Yeah, very, very interesting. So I want to turn to to uh, kind of a different side of the coin, right? Uh, particularly of these peer groups, and whether it's an external one, 
you know, outside of your company um, and working with other people within a third party group or whether you've actually got these peer groups, your company's big enough that, you know, you've formed them internally. Um, this topic of accountability is a really, really important one because if the group is trying to move toward a particular end and they don't help hold one another accountable, uh, these groups can fall apart really fast or they can just devolve into, you know, you did everything on the agenda and bravo, right? But nobody's moving their businesses ahead. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things that really got me thinking very differently about accountability was an um, article that I read a number of years ago. Um, I think it was in Atlantic Monthly that uh, Pazi Salberg was being interviewed, interviewed. And Pazi Salberg is the former director general of the school system in Finland, one of the top secondary school systems in the world. And he was being asked all these questions about accountability. And he finally says, you know what? We don't even have a word that I would regard as a direct translation for the word accountability in the Finnish language. He says, from our perspective, really? culturally speaking, the um, accountability is what you're stuck with when someone's sense of personal responsibility gives way. And when I first read that, I was thinking, okay, well, that's in kind of an interesting turn of phrase until you really crawl inside it and you start thinking about what accountability feels like for most employees. And for most employees, it feels like they're playing defense. It feels like they're on the other side of the table, constantly being asked, did you do this? Did you get this? Did you, know, did you reach this goal? Did you do that? And what, where this ties into another finding that we had that, that kind, of, kind of completes the accountability picture, at least from my perspective and what we talk about in the book, um, you know, is this idea that the leader needs to think of themselves as a part of the team, not apart from it. And this is another thing where the leader really has the role of leader for sure. But when you're leading a team, it has to be kind of a situation where you're all in it together. You all, you win together, you lose together, you laugh together, cry together, whatever that happens to mean. And what you do is you accept personal responsibility for achieving a certain standard of excellence because you recognize that that's why I'm here. I'm here not to fill a job or fill a role. I'm here to make a difference. And I recognize everyone around me is here to do the same. And I'm going to step up and accept personal responsibility for that. And the leader will do the same. The leader is also being accountable you know, to everyone on the team for whatever that leader can and should be doing to help support the team's overall success. And I think when you change the accountability model where everyone feels like they can play offense around accountability and work together to drive excellence in the organization, as opposed to having the leader on one side of the table, the team on the other, and having the team feel like they're being constantly hammered and, and, and being held accountable, it changes the dynamic, I think, incredibly. Um, and I, I think it's something we've seen uh, peer groups do really, really well because CEOs are not necessarily interested and having someone hold them, I mean, CEOs are held accountable six ways to Sunday between board, <laughs> right. customers, employees, vendors, you know, right? What they want, they recognize, I'm going to step up. I matter, you know, as a member of this group. I'm going to be a pro. Everyone else is, is bringing their A games. And when you have that type of environment with the leaders supporting that type of culture, I think it's really, really powerful. And to the extent that we can replicate that dynamic in our companies, I think uh, could be a real game changer for a lot of organizations. And so how did your view of leadership 
change when you were writing this book? Um, my, my view of leadership really started to change pretty dramatically. Uh, I'm going to start this by saying in, in graduate school and reading the leadership challenge by uh, Kuzis and Posner. Um, and since then, having read a lot of different things, but I constantly go back to that. I would say to someone, if they had to read one book about leadership, that would be the one. And I think this in the very first, you know, when you look at the five exemplary practices of leadership from that book is modeling the way. And it's probably, I think, among the five, uh, the most powerful. And it's where it finds its way into every aspect of this book um, all the time is how do we model behaviors? How do we recognize that the power of we begins with me? And the way I model my behavior, the way I show up for others, whether I am the leader of the group or I am a leader in the group, um, that becomes really, really key. And so I, I really think about that particular aspect of leadership. And the second one, by the way, that I think is really crucial, one of the other five exemplary factors is encouraging the heart. Um, as best I remember, uh, most people, when they start looking at the five exemplary practices of leadership from the leadership challenge, encouraging the heart is something that they're probably, for lack of a better way to describe it, the worst at, you know, they, <laughs> yes. they don't take the time to really give public recognition, to really celebrate, to do the kinds of things that keep things fun and, and inspiring and making sure that it's not about lighting a fire under someone. It's about being able to light that fire within. Mm -hmm. So I think th those things for me have come together, looking at that work and seeing how really well it connects and fits with everything I've been learning over the past decade uh, has been, um, you know, really inspiring and, and really, you know, it, it feels good to just see that come together. Well, I love that. And I, I've actually never heard that, uh, that phrase, uh, that the real difference between leadership and management is lighting the fire within versus lighting it under <laughs> your team. Uh, how powerful. Yeah, the difference between motivation and inspiration, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Some, right. You, you can be motivated because someone's going to fire you if you don't do it. That doesn't mean that's, that's very inspiring, right? Exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. So, so what does peer innovation mean for teams? And, and how do you begin the journey from me to we when you are a powerful leader in an organization and you're not getting the results that you need? Well, I think everybody can be a powerful leader in their organization. Again, I don't think it's always about having the fanciest title of being the leader of the team. Uh, I think we can all be leaders in the team. We have to first recognize that we are there to make a difference and that we matter, and we matter a lot. Uh, one of the stories I tell in the book, even from uh, a CEO member who was, put, imagine a CEO, right? They go to their own company. They know they matter a lot. And in most cases, they recognize that they matter in a group as well. But this particular CEO, his attendance wasn't particularly great. And, you know, we got into a conversation about that. You could see he was kind of getting annoyed with the, with the dialogue. So he stood up literally in the meeting and said, look, I'm here when I can be here. I pay the dues. And he goes on and on and on. And finally says, you know what? I'm the only one that really suffers when I don't make it. And he sits down and that was that. So there was this moment, as you might imagine. So... I went to, um, I looked at one of the other members and I said, hey, would you mind giving me one minute of what happens when 
the CEO can't make it. And all of a sudden he said, well, my God, you know, when, when he's not here, you know, we, we don't get this perspective. We don't get that, whatever. Then I went to a second member, then I went to a third. By the time I went to third member, um, the gentleman who originally, you know, stood up and made the speech was literally welling up, um, not at all recognizing how much of a difference his presence meant to everyone else in that room. And I turned to him and I said, look, I didn't do that to show you up or anything like that. I could have asked that of any member in this group, because the fact of the matter is that you can't have a jazz ensemble and start pulling instruments out of it and expect it to sound the same. Every right. one of you contributes something really important, really powerful. And I think once we recognize that, whether that we're the CEO of a company or whether we're part of a group or we're, you know, manager level, director level, wherever you are in your company, recognize that you matter recognize that how you show up makes a difference to everyone. And this whole idea of modeling the way that I talked about from the leadership challenge is real and it's infectious. And um, I think it's a real powerful force. So for any, anybody who's looking to make uh, their team better, and it will take time, but you will start getting the right people and the right behaviors and really good things happening. Mm. Well, Leo, this has been really, really powerful. Again, we've been talking about the book, Peer Innovation, what peer advisory groups can teach us about building high-performing teams. Leo, can you share with our listeners uh, where they can best follow you, find you, get in touch with you? Sure. Um, they can go to leobatari.com, L-E-O-B-O-T-T-A-R-Y.com, uh, and they can get all the information they want from our podcast to any information about the three books to speaking to all kinds of content around groups and teams and uh, it's all there for you. So that bye. is fabulous. <laughs> uh, I so appreciate you taking your time uh, on a Friday and uh, hope you have a wonderful uh, Thanksgiving next week, whatever that looks like where you live and uh, hope you in, enjoy that time. And uh, as the holidays are upon us, uh, get some time to renew and rejuvenate. And for those who've been listening, go out and change your game today by taking a look. Uh, first of all, I would encourage you to look at external peer groups because uh, there are so many that are available both locally and, and nationally and even internationally uh, that you can find something where you're a great fit and where it can actually help you achieve the benefits that Leo has talked about today. Again, Leo, thank you so much and have a great weekend. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas, inspiration, innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald. Like what you just heard, visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business.